And even as we continued in our liturgical element in the shorter catechism, um, going from questions one and three this morning and four through six this evening, um, this morning we looked at Matthew chapter five, and I read verses one through 16, the Beatitudes and the Similitudes, and that I am going to do for pastoral reasons and um, personal reasons, just little breaks from some of our series. Um, and so we're going to look at, I'm going to read the same passage that we read this morning. And we looked at the notion from the first Beatitude, really, um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first beatitude. And we just looked at the notion that as Christian people, we are blessed. Blessed in God, blessed in God in Christ. And tonight, my purpose is to look at the second um, beatitude, which will be found in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And before I read this section, we remember that this word makarios for blessed can mean both blessed or happy. Mark Lloyd-Jones is, um, he's fabulous. He prefers the happy, um, I don't know why. He he has a a commentary on the Beatitudes, which J.I. Packer, who I quoted this morning, says is uh, its spiritual gold. If you've never read um, Martin Lloyd-Jones on the Beatitudes, there was a time that I would read through it almost every day, and I thought to myself, I should read the Bible in this every day. But um, I digress. Let me read Matthew 5. Verse 1, hear God's word. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are the best of fathers, and we know that um, your ways for us are best. Lord, you've drawn us to your Son, Jesus, our Savior, washed us from all of our sins. You've fully received us, Lord. There are no second-class citizens in your kingdom. We all, as believers, are beloved sons and beloved daughters. Teach us, Holy Spirit, what it means to be blessed in Christ, 
that we would not be downcast or beaten down in this very difficult world, in this world of our alien pilgrimage, but our faith would overcome the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I mentioned this morning that in the Beatitudes you see Jesus Christ out in the wilderness of the world. He's um, been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is the Ezekiel 34, the John chapter 10. He is the good shepherd. He tells us in John chapter 10, he's not just seeking the lost sheep from the house of Israel, but he says to his followers at the time, which were mainly Jews, I have other sheep, not of this fold. I must seek search them out as well. And that is a reference to, um, to Gentiles, to make us all one fold. There are many descriptions of Jesus Christ in the Bible. The one that I heard every Sunday of my life in the Roman Catholic Church, but I didn't know it was in the Bible, uh, was when you would hear this statement, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then we would say before the Eucharist, and happier are those who are called to his supper. And then we would say, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you. Only say the word and I shall be healed. All of those statements, which I never knew because I didn't read the Bible, were found in the Bible variously. Some by John the Baptist, which is the John chapter 1, round about verse 18 or 19. Behold the Lamb of God. And the other is, I'm not worthy to receive you into my home, was the Roman soldier whose child or servant was dying and said, you don't, need, I, I, I don't need to, you don't need to come to my house. I'm not worthy to have you to come into my house. Just say the word, and my servant or my son shall be healed. The, just a connection. So, so we have Christ being called the Lamb of God, um, Jesus Christ being the great shepherd of his sheep. Those things tell us not only about the person of Jesus, um, they depict the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ tells us that he has not come for the righteous, but he's come to seek and to save the lost. And the notion of him being the Lamb of God is he offers his life as an atoning sacrifice. This is on our bulletin cover from Romans 5, 1 through 11. The access, the peace, the justification that we have in Christ is because of his atoning sacrifice. So the Bible does variously describe Christ there's a, there is a place in the Bible, since our purpose today is to look at verse 4. Verse 4 is the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you remember, I don't know when it was. At this time, I was in Calvary Chapel before I, I spent some two years in Calvary Chapel in Tallahassee. The kids would wear the WWJD bracelet. You remember that? Um, and I know Reformed people, we don't really like like um, bumper sticker t-shirt Christianity, but the WW, what would Jesus do? It's wrong if what we're saying is, I think Jesus would do this. <laughs> that would be silly. There's a place in First Peter, I want to say chapter 1, towards the end of the, ch- the chapter, where Christ has left us a pattern that we are to walk in his footsteps And Jesus says in John chapter 15, the way that the world treats me is going to be the way that the world treats you. If they treat the master this way, this is the way they're going to treat the servants. So there is a connection with the discipleship of Jesus that we are to walk in Christ's footsteps. 
that our life is to be lived in imitation of our Christ. And so when we read the Bible and we see a description of our Christ or description of the work, the work of our Christ, some of these things can inform how we are to live as Christians. And I'm saying this as a preface to the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. When we think of the idea of mourning, this is not mourning like morning night. This is mourning, sadness, sorrow, that kind of mourning, grieving. When we think of that business, we should think of that subject and then think of it, think of it in relationship to our Christ. Um, some of the most, certainly Isaiah 53 is a famous chapter. But Isaiah 45 to 55, those, something like 10 chapters, it's the suffering servant chapters. Jesus, it is said in Isaiah 53 that he was a man of many what? Sorrows. Now, my, my daughter's minister interacted with, he, he called this minister a, um, oh, a celebrity minister in California. I think who, I knew who he was talking about, but he didn't name names, which is probably wiser. And he said, this person said that Jesus never laughed. And so my daughter's minister was interacting with that. He said he disagreed with it, even though there was no scripture text that said he never laughed. He said that laughter is part of the the expression of being a human being, which I think philosophically I agree with him. But there is something to be said that the Bible never records Jesus. I'm not saying he never laughed as a little kid or anything like that. I'm I'm not saying that. But it, it is informative to us that the Bible never records an occasion where Jesus did laugh. And the Bible does record occasions where Jesus wept. Jesus wept over Lazarus in John 10, uh, John 10, John 11. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to draw you to myself like a mother hen longs to draw her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You've missed the day of your visitation. Uh, Jesus cried out with great uh, lamentation on, on the cross. And that shows us what the prophecy of Isaiah 53 says, is he was a man of many sorrows. Our Jesus Christ, when we're just studying the idea of what these Beatitudes teach us, remember we said it's not the gospel. It's, it's kingdom dictates. It's law, but not it's, it's moral directives of those who have embraced Jesus Christ savingly. This is how Christians are to live in the, true Christians are to live in the world. We've been busy talking about true Christians from false Christians, and I tried to make the point, and I hope hope I wasn't overly laborious, but rather than trying to determine what neighbor of ours is a true or a false Christian, I think, and I'm not saying some of that exercise might not be helpful, but I think we would benefit of ourselves if we applied it first to ourselves. Um, rather than saying, well, the church is anemic, we, the church n- never mourns, or my neighbor never mourns for their sin. Rather than that, I want this to be intensely personal and practical for us. And rather than looking, who, who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness next to me? Forego that for a time. Just apply all of these things first to yourself. Am I hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Am I meek? Am I gentle? Am am I a peacemaker? Let's leave off maybe trying to find out what Christian is defective for a while. Our Jesus 
is a holy mourner. He's a holy griever. And he is the master. And J.C. Ryle and a bunch of the other Puritans would say, which is true, why do we think our life should be radically easier than our master? If our master is a man of many sorrows, if our Christ, our Savior, is a man of holy grief and holy mourning, why do we think, and we do, and I do, why do I think when some sadness or affliction or pain comes into my life which causes me to mourn, why do I think some strange thing has happened to me? And the Apostle Peter says the exact same thing, the exact opposite. He said, no, no, no. When this happens, it's not that some strange thing has happened. This is normative. This is no- Our Christ is a holy mourner, and we belong to him. And the path that he set for us, and I know in, what is it, Latin or, or probably, it's Latin or Italian, Via del Rosso, the way of sorrow. And this is not to depress or to, to deject us or anything like that. Because Jesus comes along and says it's the exact opposite of what the flesh reasons. The flesh comes here and thinks, happy mourner, happy blessed griever? No, thank you very much. I would like to sign up for another form of Christianity or, or, or not Christianity. If this is Christianity, I would rather sign up for something happy, the Optimist Club or something like that. Christ comes along, turns everything on its head. So if, you, if, if we are bereft of the Holy Spirit, none of this makes sense. Blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are abused. This makes no sense to, to the flesh. It's only when we have true faith in Christ and we're submitting to the word. Because even true believers in Jesus Christ, we still have the flesh. And so sometimes we could read a plain word in the Bible and think, I know what that means, but I'm going to choose not to know what that means because I don't like what it means. So Christ says, those who mourn are blessed. And so um, what did... You remember when Christ was doing the debriefing of the guys in Matthew chapter 16? And he said, first, you all, plural, and then Peter pipes up, singular. He says, who do the people say that I am? He sends the guys out preaching. He calls them in for a debriefing. He wants to see how their their evangelistic labors went. And and they said, some people say you're this, Elijah the prophet, the miracle-working, the powerful-working prophet. And some people say that you are, remember the other prophet they thought he was? Come back from the dead? Jeremiah. What was Jeremiah the prophet also known as? What kind of prophet? The weeping prophet. And why did Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations? What was going on in Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations? The people of God were being either chastised if they were true believers or or. or or, they, or receiving the judgment of God if they were false believers. They were being taken off into captivity in three waves and then brought back. And, and all of the, the pain involved in that. And Jeremiah lived to see it. And it was the wages of sin. And it, it broke his heart. And so th- that's kind of a preface when we're looking at blessed are those who mourn. It's not a strange thing. Our Christ is the blessed mourner. We belong to him and we are called to walk in his footsteps and he tells us to deny ourselves and to to die to our selfish desires and to pick up our what our cross and to follow him 
to follow him where he says. There have been many times as a believer, sad to say, not only when I was a young believer, where I could have wished to direct the Lord's steps to a happy and a more pleasant place than where the place that he was leading me was a painful place and I didn't want to go there. And even the Apostle Peter says at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus says to him, when you were a young person, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted to go. When you get older, someone's going to take you to a place that you don't want to go, meaning they're going to, they're going to uh, crucify you. And then you remember what he said? He said, what about John? What about John? After hearing you, Peter, this wonderful servant of Christ, are going to follow in my footsteps. Remember James and John, the sons of thunder? The mom said, can my boys sit at your right and your left? And he says to the mother and the boys, you don't even know what you're asking. And then he says, can you drink my cup? And what did they say? We can. And what did he say back? And you will. So our, our Savior is the blessed mourner, and we are to imitate him. And he doesn't wait for us to figure out the, the path that he has uh, for us for our mourning. He, he, he places us in it. And when we think of Christ and why he mourned, why he was the, the man of sorrows, um, it, it's going to inform what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who mourn. What was the thing which caused Jesus to grieve and mourn so much over Jerusalem? What was the thing? Why was Jesus the man of many sorrows? It, it's sin. It's what, um, it's what sin is. Sin, John Bunyan calls it a, a rape of God's will. It's, he uses language which is terrifying, uh, a daring of God's will. Uh, it's, he does use the word rape. It's, it's just grotesque the way Bunyan describes a sin. I don't have the requisite vocabulary to describe the, the Puritans would write treatise after the sinfulness of sin, the evil of evil, Ralph Venning, Jeremiah Burroughs. They, they would write on the magnitude of sin because it's an offense against the infinite, the immense, the eternal, immutable being. That, that's why it's so, it's so grotesque. So Christ is, is a mourner over sin because of the, the person being sinned against, the being being sinned against is God. That's why he mourns. And then he mourns not just because of what sin is against God, but what it is against human beings. And this is what informs us what he's talking about when we mourn. Sin is not um, is never neutral. And it's never, well, there are no victims. There's no, it's, it's a crimeless sin. It's a... It's a victimless sin, a painless... There, there's no such thing. When someone breaks one of God's moral laws, not only are they sinning against God for which Christ mourns and for which we should mourn, what about the human beings? Human beings were as originally created by God before they fell in Adam, were created perfect and holy with true righteousness and true knowledge of God. And... and in sin has plunged mankind 
into this. I, I was away on, up in, um, in Chattanooga for a week, and it's really beautiful. And my wife and I, my wife was my college girlfriend, and I always joke with her. It's like, we're, it's like I have my girlfriend. We're just hanging out, going to coffee and whatever we're doing. And we took rides up and down in a big, I don't know, one of those paddle boats up and down the, the river. And it's just wonderful. But even in this pristine place, there was not a day that I, there was not an hour that I didn't see the ravages and the pain of sin. Um, and it would break your heart. Chattanooga is a beautiful place, but it, 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 is, um, it, has a, it has a massive homelessness problem. Massive. And a lot of these homeless folks have mental illness, drug addiction, alcohol, and you just look at these image bearers. There's somebody's son. There's somebody's daughter. There's somebody's dad. Somebody's mom. And they're a wreck. And so you go from hanging out with the person you love most in the, on the world and having a wonderful lunch, looking at this beautiful river, and then I talking to a guy that hadn't eaten that day. That's what sin does. All sin does that. Sometimes we can't see it like that. And Christ weeps for that. So it's an offense of God for which Christ weeps. Sin is so destructive to human beings. It causes Christ's grief. And so those, the, the grief and the mourning of Christ over sin, both unto God and because of what it does to human beings. And then eventually, Christ is God come in the flesh, and he will be the judge of judge. Of, of what sin will eventually do to people for all eternity. They'll, they'll be separated from God. Somebody's child grew up to die Christless and in their sin to spend an eternity suffering the judgment of God. And Christ wept. Now, I am a high Calvinist, and I cannot understand the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. I read J.I. Packer on it. I've read a bunch of guys on it, a lot smarter than me. And it, I still cannot understand it. Man is responsible. God is utterly sovereign. And I know some people, and I think they're wrong theologically, will say, that, well, no, 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 Jesus is happy. Jesus is, didn't weep over Jerusalem. Jesus ordained that all of the... Yes, I believe Jesus ordains everything. This is in Ephesians 1, verse 11. I believe that. Jesus weeps. Now, when he comes back and he takes the place of a judge, I don't think he'll be weeping then. But before then, when the offer of salvation goes out, he weeps that sin will send people to a Christless eternity. All of these things inform us what Christ is getting at when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So the things that we're looking at are mourning for sin, grieving for sin. And I'm going to add some other things coupled with that, but that's the primary thing because it's an offense against our holy God, our loving Christ, our holy comforter spirit. It's an abuse of the body and the souls of human beings, human beings we love and human beings that we don't love in ourselves. It's an abuse. 
And then um, we'll look at some of those things. We'll look at what it means to be comforted. But I just want to touch on a little bit to back up somewhat, thematically back up, that the Beatitudes are put in paradoxical form. It's almost like uh, Christ speaks oftentimes in parables. If you read, um, oh, Johnny boy, Johnny boy, um, Matthew. It's Matthew 11 or Matthew 13. Matthew 11. It's Matthew 11, before 28 to 30, where it says, come to me, you heavy laden. Prior to that, Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you hid these gospel things from the wise, the, the learned, the rich, the powerful, and that you revealed them to babes. They call it, there's a couple of theological terms that I'm having mental blocks right now, but there is a, a divine obscuring and a divine re, revealing. There, it's called judicial hardening. When, when God uh, does a, a, a manifest divine obscuring, blessed are you, Father, you hid these things. That's obscuring. It's a measure of divine hardening. It's, a, it's an aspect of judge, judgment. And God doesn't allow them to eyes to see. And then the divine reeling, revealing, excuse me, is an aspect of divine mercy. God intends to have mercy on those people. So the parables have two purposes for two classes of people. For the elect believer, they reveal the truths of God. For the non-elect unbeliever, they're, they're kept from the truth of God. And God still retains his justice, and, and we still retain our responsibility or culpability before God, although I can't understand how to untie that Gordian knot. I, I know it's true. Like that, like God speaking in parabolic form, he oftentimes puts spiritual truth in paradoxical form. A paradox seems to be contrary. It seems it's a conundrum. You, you think, well, this doesn't make sense. Happy mourners. And Martin Lloyd-Jones does a really good job of unpacking this. But the counterpart of Matthew 5 is Luke chapter 6. And some of the language there is even stronger. Woe to you who laugh now, because you're not going to be comforted. Blessed are you who mourn now, because you will. So woe to you who laugh, because you're going to weep. And blessed are you who weep, because you're going to laugh or rejoice. But it, it seems like they're paradoxes. And then when God the Holy Spirit works faith in us, which I think God the Holy Spirit uses the instrument of the word, there are people that think that you're regenerated apart from the ministry of the word. There's a term for them. William Shedd has a whole chapter on it. And there are other people that think God the Holy Spirit regenerates us, makes us alive before faith. I think it's like that through the instrumentality of the word. And that's my view. This is a James 1.18, 1 Peter 1, 21 through 25. Um, I, this is a Romans 10, 1 through 10. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. We've been born again by the word of truth. So I think he uses the instrumentality of the word. So God, the Holy Spirit, brings us into a place where we hear the word, the word of the gospel, and we're converted. We have faith. It's not that we understand everything about the Bible, but now we're alive to the Bible. We have the Holy Spirit as an indwelling counselor. And so then we come to the scriptures and we think, oh, this is not a paradox. This, this isn't what the worldling, the unbeliever says is, is, a, is a contradiction. There's no contradiction here. Our Christ mourned over sin. We are to mourn over sin. 
So it's not that we become intellectually sharper in an instant. We've become born again. We've become spiritual people. Um, This is a 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 16. The person who's not spiritual comes here and they think, grieving, (laughs) mourning, even for sin? No, 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 this cannot be right. And I would argue the better part of the Christian church, I'm sad to say, thinks, no, 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 no. Christianity shouldn't have any of this. We should all be, you know, the kind of glib I shouldn't be cynical, but I, sometimes cynicism is a sin, probably always, always a sin. Um, you look at kind of a glib, superficial Christianity where, where you're taught to always be happy, to never be crying. You should never be sad because it shows that you're not growing and that you just always walk around with a smile. Um, I spent some time in that form of Christianity And after my dad died, I couldn't handle that Christianity anymore. I I just couldn't. It's not true. It's not true. I I hope I don't promote the Christianity the opposite. We walk around flagellating ourselves. Christ is not saying we should go to the, the, the grave of our son or our daughter, God forbid, or our spouse, God forbid, and we're just walking around, count it all joy. Haven't you heard Christians tell you this? It's, it's an abuse of the Bible. It's, it's, it, it, they're twisting the scripture. It's not a right understanding. The Bible interprets the Bible. There's a time to weep. There's a time to rejoice. If someone that you love dies, you weep. It's a time to weep. So this is... The, 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 the modern church is so averse to this because we're so worldly. Again, Lloyd-Jones says they have a... They have a, 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 a low view of sin and a low view of joy. And he connects them both together. It's very much like Jonathan Edwards. He's arguing that the higher view of sin we have, the more joy, the more comfort that we derive by God in Christ. Because we're going to God in Christ for our sin. When we have a low view of sin, we think Jesus is just our, our friend, our I don't know. It's it's something we add on. It's a religious add-on. But that's... So the higher view we have of sin, the higher view we have of Christ, the deeper will be our real joy. And so isn't it true, beloved, if you've ever spent time in churches where it's happy, 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 joy, 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 their joy is only in the creature. Take away their health. Take away their, their wealth. Take away their life. Or the life of their loved ones. And what happens? The joy is destroyed. And what all of these things do, a mourning for sin. I realize it's paradoxical. With the Spirit, we can understand it. We see that we're mourning over sin, offense against God, abuse, offense against human beings. What it does to human beings, it wrecks them. It brings them to a place that, if I could say the phrase, was never intended for us. It was intended for the devil and demons. Um, that's what makes us weep. Now, when Jesus says it's blessed, you're, it manifests that you're a recipient of saving, saving grace. Someone quoted this morning, I don't know who, at Sunday school, Matthew 7. You'll know them by their fruits. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
when we are poor in spirit, and there's a connection between poverty of spirit and mourning for sin, we know that we're bereft of righteousness. And so we weep for the presence of our sin. We weep for the presence of sin in other people. You see the connection of those things? People that are not poor in spirit, the opposite of poor in spirit, a synonym of poverty of spirit is humility. We're, we're, our brother said it this morning, I think also in Sunday school, we're not left to ourselves. We're not, we're not good left to ourselves. And when the Holy Spirit comes and converts us, he shows us ourself before God and we think, I'm undone. I'm a sinner. Lord Jesus, save me. So you see the connection. The poverty of spirit, I'm not righteous. I'm a pauper before God. And then the mourning for sin, Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then the comfort. You see that? So there's a, there's a connection between all of these things. And this is basic Christianity. And so when we see fruits in our life, it's meant to work to our assurance of grace, which we talked about this morning. It's meant to, to confirm in us that we, we, we really do belong to Jesus Christ. We really have passed out of darkness into light. There's so much in our life which we still mourn for. Even as Christians, we mourn for the sin in our life. There's plenty of that. And have you experienced ever as a Christian, because you see the presence of sin in your life, and you see it every day in your life, have you ever wondered, am I really in Christ? Do people in Christ think what I think? Do they say what I say? Do they look at what I look at? Do, do they? Have you ever experienced that? I have many, many times. But then I've had the opposite experience, which this is meant to inculcate in us. But do you have poverty of spirit? Are you, are you trusting in yourself or are you trusting in Christ? Do you mourn for your sin? Yes, but. And I tend to be harder on myself and I hope gentler on others. I don't... Yes, but... Well, stop the yes, but for a second. Do you at all <laughs> mourn for your sin? Do you mourn to God for your sin? Before you, when you were converted, do it, do it, do, do you do it now? Lord Jesus Christ, this is, this is a Roman 7. I do stuff I don't want to do. I know I shouldn't do it, I do it. And the stuff I want to do, you tell me, I read it, I preach it, I teach it. And what does Paul say? Oh, wretched man that I am. Right? Is he a perfect Christian? No, but that's the Philippians 3, 1 through 14. So yes, is there stuff in our, our life that can depress us? Yes. But beloved, the degree of our sanctification does not teach us, infallibly so, that we are not justified. Every person justified is 100% justified, and every justified person that's still on the earth is <laughs> imperfectly sanctified. So we can't judge our perfect, complete justification hypercritically with our imperfect sanctification, because you're always going to come to the wrong conclusion. Do, do you see any of these things in your life? Are you... Are you laboring to be meek? Do you labor to love? Do you labor to speak up for you? you are, are the, and I know everybody in this room, so I know the answer is what? Yes. 
These are the things. So if we're going to listen to the devil tell us bad things about ourselves and our flesh tell us bad things about ourselves, why don't we listen to God in Christ tell us encouraging things about ourselves? There's plenty of bad things to listen to in the world. And one of the benefits of reading the Bible is you have the good one telling you good things about you. And again, this is not in a haughty or bad way. My daughter is a mental health counselor, and you first have to get your, um, when you get your license, you have to do, I don't know, practicum hours. And so in the state of Georgia, if you were a drunk driver or a druggie or something like that, they took your license away, and you had to go to drug rehab. And so she worked for the state on the cheaps. And she used to practice with her, I guess, I don't know what you call them, her clients, she would practice um, having them hear good things about themselves. What, what's, is there anything good? And she would tell them good things about themselves. And not in a, I, th- I thought it was actually an insightful thing. She said, well, Dad, these people are drug addicts and, and, they're, and they're, they're drunkards and they've caused like just wrecks in all of their relationships. They've spent most of their lives hearing how bad they are. And that they're, they're, no, they're, they're no good. And I just thought it might be helpful for them if they heard that they're not all bad. That they have some good. Beloved, that's not a silly thing. Christ comes along and says, well, let me tell you. There's plenty of bad things. But here's some good things. You're blessed if you mourn. You, you, you're blessed if you're poverty of spirit. So we reason this way. It is somewhat of a mystery. I understand. We see the connectionalism between the spiritual poverty and the spiritual mourning. Um, A couple of things here. I mentioned this is not... This is is spiritual mourning primarily over sin. It is... um, I would argue as well, though, because I think there is a connection here, There's mourning over sin. There's mourning over our lack of progress in our sanctification. I have mourned over this in my own life. If you've been a a believer of any length of time, um, there was, oh boy, he was an evangelist, a very famous evangelist. His first name was Samuel. It will come to me, famous for me, one of the Puritans. And he said, said, um, I think he was a a Southern Presbyterian. And um, he wanted to live a long time. Because he, he wanted to be as sanctified as he could be before he went to heaven. And then when he was like 37 and he got very sick, and he actually died like at 37, 39. He said, well, I've changed my mind. I used to think I wanted to live long so I could be really sanctified before I went to heaven. He goes, but I was converted at like 12 and I've just grown like this much. And he mourned over the smallness of his progress in grace. These are things that we more. This is the believer. This is the. This is the. First Peter talks about this. Uh, Romans, as we said, Paul laments. Yes, I still. I still have sin, but I've made such small progress, and and we're we're sorrowful for it. And not only are we sorrowful for our sins, we're sorrowful for our sins in 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 certain um, ways that we can delineate them. Sins that we committed, committed before conversion and sins that we committed, committed after conversion. Sometimes people say, well, 
after conversion, you should never consider your pre-conversion sins because they're forgiven. Well, that is true. And I'm, when, when we're talking about mourning for sin, I, I think this is, I should have said this at the very beginning. You can look at your own sin too much. Not many people have that problem. We're too busy looking at the sin of other people of too much to have that problem. I love to look at the sin of other people. I could fix everybody here's lives like instantly. I just can't fix my own. I can, oh, look, look, he doesn't do that. Oh, you don't read the Bible enough. You don't pray like me. And, uh, look at all the sin I see in your life. I could fix your life. If you just did this easy squeezy. And you say, physician, heal thyself. Well, I just can't see my sin and I can't fix myself. So th- there is a looking at our sin, which would be inordinate and it would not be helpful and it would be downright hurtful. Um, for ourselves, in especially others, we, we should not be happy about that. Um, there is a Puritan, Thomas Watson. He says, "For every one look at our sin, I'll butcher it. Take ten looks at Christ." I I agree with that. One of the things that looking at our sin, even one time, an honest time, it makes us look at Christ honestly when we don't mourn for our sin we're not really looking at Christ properly Um, and I'm not saying confession of sin is the only thing that we look to Christ for certainly not but when you're grieving for your sins you come to unburden your grief to Christ if I could say the word honesty with passion, with faith, please, Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me. Or even the thanksgiving, thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, you forgave me. I know that the, the Christian that says never consider the sins pre-conversion, post-conversion is wrong because the Apostle Paul said regularly, I persecuted the church after he was converted. He reminded himself. And this is... One of the benefits, the the secondary benefits of mourning for our sins, taking it to Christ for the relief for our sins, is it does a couple of things. For pre-conversion sins, and especially for post-conversion sins, for the sins that we commit after we're Christians, when we properly mourn, it does something beneficial towards us, for us, as Christian people. It makes us more tender towards God, more loving, more appreciative, more thankful, more serviceable, more like our Christ. Because we say, well, we're not righteous, we're sinners, and he's forgiven me. I've received the comfort, and now I can go and do likewise to my neighbor. And this is what I mean. When we remind ourselves, when I was unconverted, this is what I, I, I lived in and sinned in, and God forgave me. Beloved, it's super easy. I mentioned it's my practice, it's my intended practice to be harder on myself and gentler on other people. Is classic Puritan thought that a classic Pharisee is the opposite of that. A Pharisee, a legalist, is easy on self and harder on other people. A Christian should be a little bit harder on self and more gentle with other, others. It's easy to become a Pharisee. It's really easy regarding the the business of sin. 
And it's easy to look down on the sin of others and magnify the sin of others and minimize the graces of others and magnify our graces and minimize our sins. One of the benefits of reminding ourselves, this is what I was, and Christ saved me. Beloved, proud, unforgiving, unmerciful Christians is an oxymoron. We're not serviceable to Christ. When we come across sinners that sin, we shouldn't look down our snoot at them and think, you, ugh. when we mourn for our sin and we realize that Jesus forgave us, we would be way gentler to unbelievers that are caught in their sin. We would be way gentler. Because that's us. That's us. Why did my wife and I spend a, a, a beautiful week in a beautiful hotel eating delicious food in a healthy body in a beautiful car and then see my beautiful daughter and beautiful grandchildren? And why was I not the hundreds of men and women I saw living on the street? Why? Why? It makes us gentler. And then when we mourn and then receive the comfort for our sins that we commit after our conversion, it makes us gentler to Christians, our fellow brothers and sisters that still sin. So not just gentle to the unbeliever who sins. The church, I I don't like to ever beat up on the church because it's Christ's body, but is it easy to find faults among? Yes, of course. But the church is the church. Where do we go? If If we don't go to a church with imperfect people who are joined to a perfect Jesus, where do we go? Church should be a place where we build each other up. Church can be brutal. And I'm not talking about anybody here. It can be a place where people, I never want to go back again. Why? Because that person hurt me. They hurt me. They dejected me. They They kicked me in the teeth. And sometimes folks are wrong, but sometimes folks are right. Because we're not gentle. Oh, I can't, I can't believe you sinned. I can't believe you did this. What do you mean? You did it. I said to my wife this afternoon, we were talking about some things. I said, I, I think this. If the Holy Spirit ever showed us our sins that we've committed post-conversion, that we've done, and wham, all at once, we would probably pass on. We wouldn't even believe it. If I told, if I told you, we wouldn't believe it. We're, 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 we're too hard on our fellow Christian. And we pray, Lord God, forgive me. Lord God, have mercy on me. But give my neighbor, my fellow Christian, justice. But if we mourn for our sins that we commit as Christians, we would be way gentler to our fellow Christians that sin. And then what would we do? We would say, brother, sister, yeah, man, I I fight that one too. I failed in that too. You know what? Go to Christ. don't, Don't stay away from Christ. Go to Christ. He'll forgive you. He'll receive you. You'll be reconciled. You'll become comforted. Amen? Amen? May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.